0: Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Well, I hope that you're all well this week, that you've enjoyed the heat wave that is scorching us here in the UK at the moment. Last week, my travel diaries were in Cornwall. And this week takes me to one of my hidden gems in the UK, somewhere I've been on holiday numerous times. And if you're heading back London way, it's a great place to stop off, actually, on the way back from the southwest up to the city. A little more than two hours west of London by train. Bruton is a quiet farming town in the county of Somerset, or at least It used to be quiet. Over the last few years, creatives have discovered the Hamlet and begun converting its historic estates into galleries, stylish hotels, and incredible restaurants. This time around, I stayed at one of the new openings there, Number One Bruton, an elegant Georgian townhouse, medieval forge, and row of cottages that had been beautifully converted into a 12-bedroom hotel, all set around the most cute private courtyard. At the heart of the project is a clear devotion to Somerset's craft heritage, artistry and culture. And what makes a stay there even more exciting is that within the hotel is OSIP, a tiny farm to table restaurant run by 25 year old chef Merlin Lebron Johnson, which having only been open a year, has just been awarded a Michelin star. I've eaten there a couple of times. I ate there when it first opened and obviously just now and truly one of the most memorable meals each time that i've ever experienced and excellent value as well i think it was about 65 pounds a head for a six or seven course tasting menu and yeah truly worth the visit world-renowned art gallery hauser and worth they have an outpost out there in Bruton, along with a hip restaurant and The town itself is now home to several design shops and artisan eateries. One of my favourites is At The Chapel, which is a stunning church conversion and it's a great place to go to for brunch. It's a real retreat from city life and, you know, I I really couldn't recommend Bruton more highly. So that's my travel tip for this week. Right, on to today's guests. I feel very privileged to be joined by another legend of the broadcasting world today. John Simpson has been reporting for the BBC for 51 years and has been its World Affairs editor since 1982, covering in person more major world events than many of us could probably recount, from the Iranian Revolution and Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing to the Kosovo War and US-led invasion of Afghanistan, interviewing the majority of the world's leaders along the way. Having broadcast from the front line in over 30 war zones, today's episode features so many tales of courage. And if you read up on John's career, really, we're, you know, we're just scratching the surface. We'll hear about what it was like being smuggled into Afghanistan dressed as a woman, the time he was physically assaulted by a British Prime Minister, and his extremely close shave with the IRA in Belfast. And along with those kind of stories, it's clear that John also adores traveling. And I love that he's picked really unusual destinations that, you know, weren't necessarily on my radar before. And he's totally sold me on them. And I'm sure he will. You too. So from Paris to Iran, Uzbekistan to Argentina, let's get started. John Simpson. Welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. It is so wonderful to be speaking with you today in what looks like a beautiful room. Is that a library you're in? What's, what's yes, behind you?
1: Um, beautiful up to a point. I mean, there the, are the nice books around, um, but the picture here is, let me show you, it's actually um, Stalin. Oh. Not many people have... <laughs> Stalin in their sitting room so I usually keep it down like that in case you know I get in
0: case it offends someone
1: that's right I get reported to the thought police or something
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was reading that before Covid you were traveling or catching a plane every five days or so was it
1: that was right I worked that out I I got ill and um, I was lying flat on my back in hospital with loads of stuff. Kind of sticking out of me. And uh, I, cu- I couldn't read for a bit. I-, I wasn't able to do anything. And so I just kind of thought and I worked out um, how many trips are done, uh, mental memory feat beyond uh, anything I would have thought I could possibly do. And I worked it out. Yeah, since uh, 1970 was when I started traveling uh, abroad for the BBC. And, um, yeah, once every five days. But, of course, in the last, yeah. what is it, 18, 19 months, absolutely zero. I, d- I haven't been on a plane since I went, I think, to Beirut in, in um, mm. February of last year, 2020. So, I you know, the average is probably uh, like my granny's average. Now. <laughs>
0: but, I mean, a complete change of pace of life for you to have that kind of energy the freneticness of changing environments all the time are you looking forward to getting back on a plane and getting back to that
1: I really really am actually I've kept a kind of control over it because uh you know I thought otherwise I'd be bouncing off the walls um so I've just enjoyed uh, being locked down, enjoyed my wife's company, enjoyed the, very much the company of my 15 year old son, who I mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have seen much of um, over the last year or otherwise. Uh, yeah, I even enjoyed the dog's company and I just kind of kept it quiet. But now I'm very shortly at the end of, uh, at about the 23rd, 24th of August, going to go to Afghanistan. Um Where wow. it seems to be falling apart, and you know i can 't help but be really excited by that i mean that 's uh, you know the kind of thing that I absolutely love to cover i don 't mean to say I love you know other people 's misery, but i mean it it'll be very exciting and very difficult i think
0: How do you think you'll feel having been away from the front line to get back? Your first place, Afghanistan. I mean, I know you've spent a huge amount of time there, but you're really going right back to the thick of it.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I really do know Kabul. I mean, I must have, I think I must have spent about two or three years in Afghanistan out of my life. Mm-hmm. I, I know, and I've got loads of friends there, many of whom, of course, are trying to get out of it at the moment. And uh, I'll, I'll just slop back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, within about five minutes, I expect. Hmm.
0: Amazing, and I was looking at the sheer volume of countries that you visited. It's an awful lot, isn't it? I mean, we're in the hundreds,
1: right? Yeah, I think I think it must be. I think it's more than one hundred and fifty. But that those are countries that I broadcast from. Um, you know, I must have been to others that I I I didn't haven't broadcast from. So, but that's uh, I mean one hundred 52, I think it is something like that.
0: So, although we're about to embark on the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries, this is just this just amounts to part one of a multitude of volumes, right? So, (laughs) let's get started with chapter one, which is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be?
1: Well, childhood, actually, not much. I mean, my first memory of a journey was. Not a very good one, really. My poor mother um, uh, weeping away and uh, saying to me that my father was impossible and she couldn't live with him anymore. And I was about two or two, I think, and uh, taking me to Epsom. So it wasn't exactly a sort of, um, you know, macro journey. And in those days, I mean, that was in the 40s. Uh, in the fifties, only really rich people did much travelling. But my my father, because I I eventually um, settled down, and lived with my father, just the two of us. He had been a great traveller. I mean, he 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 ran away to sea when he was, I think, fifteen or sixteen. He was impossible, like my mum said. But he nevertheless was a wonderfully travelled person. He went became a, a steward on a piano. Um, shipping line. And wow, so he right. went right round the world, I don't know, eight or nine times or something like that. So he, he always, he used to say, oh God, this country is so bloody provincial. And during the really bad winter of 1962 to three, when everything froze up, especially our water pipes and toilets and everything, because we lived on a in a, in a weird, vast, awful, ugly house on the clifftop in, Dun- in um, a dunnage in Suffolk. Uh, it all froze, and my father said, I can't bear this anymore. And although we didn't have any money much, he said, we're going to Casablanca. I think he'd never been there, and I think he liked the idea of the film.
0: Yes, I mean, even the name sounds so exotic. <laughs>
1: yes. So I was 18, I suppose. Yeah, 18 at the time, and we got... um. Uh, an Air France flight from Heathrow to Paris. And we uh, then got onto a rickety propeller-driven plane of Royal Maroc Airlines and flew to Casablanca, which was an absolute delight and an eye-opener and all sorts of exciting things happened to us. And uh, anyway, so that was my first real proper journey.
0: And what was your impression of Casablanca when you landed there. I mean, I've never been to Casablanca. I've been to Morocco. But I mean getting off that plane um and, and as we said, like the name conjured such a, an exotic vision. Um, what was it like? How, how did it feel?
1: Well, I'd I'd never, of course, been really properly outside the UK before. So it it really was quite a shock. I mean the sad thing was that Casablanca then and I think now is is a fairly crap uh, industrial city, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, I mean there were there were really exciting, interesting old parts of it, and just to lie there on my bed with a mosquito net and a a fan, ceiling fan just seemed, I mean, I, I just thought I was Somerset Maugham or Graham Green or something at the age of, <laughs> of 18. I, I was so excited to be there. There was a wonderful smell, um, not always a very beautiful one, but there was a <laughs> wonderful smell. And uh, we went to crazy places, uh, interesting local, you know, local mo- Moroccan places, Arab restaurants. My father loved all that kind of stuff.
0: And did your dad, I mean, you know, you said that, you said how well-travelled he is. I mean, was it him who instilled in you this desire to go out and travel? Because I I read that you said that it was really the thought of travelling that attracted you to journalism as well.
1: In many ways it was. I mean, I did, I I love writing, I still do. I, I get a huge pleasure from just simply the act of sitting at a, at a at a laptop and and bashing out stuff. It never ceases to be an attraction, but um, the the idea of travelling. I suppose also I took this idea of my father's on board. Britain is insular. Uh, nobody here knows anything about the outside world. Therefore, you've got to get out and discover the outside world, which I did and and have done Mm -hmm. to a certain extent so I suppose it was that it was him kind of pushing but also the absolute joy of writing about what I was doing
0: and we'll come on to your writing later because I've been really enjoying your latest offering
1: thank you first
0: of all though uh, you became a BBC reporter back in as you said 1970 and one of your first days was quite a memorable one would you say
1: (laughs) Yes, my very first day out. Um the newspapers were were full of those sort of nudge nudge uh kind of political articles which I came to loathe uh, so much, suggesting that Harold Wilson, the the prime minister of the time, was considering holding a, a general election, snap election. And uh I was entirely new. It really was my first or maybe my second day. Uh, as a reporter. And my boss, the head of news, was also brand new to British uh, reporting. He'd, he'd been working for the overseas service. And uh, so he didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. And uh, he said to me, um, look, there's nobody else here. They're all doing other stories. Uh, Newspapers are full of suggestions that Harold Wilson's going to call an election. We've been told he's doing a photo call at 11 o'clock at Euston Station in London, uh, Platform 7. I could take you to the very place where it happened. Why don't you uh, ask him if he's going to hold an election? So I thought, well, this is not bad. My first day. And I turned up characteristically a bit late must have been i don't know 150 people or something jammed yeah. onto the platform and i got there late there was no place for me to stand so i had to stand in front of everybody uh you know move away sonny come on you're not made of glass you know all that sort of stuff and along comes harold wilson with all his sort of hangers on and i look around and nobody's Going to say anything? They're all smiling at him and saying "morning, Prime Minister" and all that kind of creepy stuff that Mm -hmm. that journalists often do. And I thought, well, in that case, if nobody else is going to ask him, I'm going to ask him. So I stepped up and I said to him, held out the microphone. "Uh, Excuse me, Prime Minister, but your newspapers are full of chat about about an election. Is, Is it true? Are you going to call an election? Except I didn't quite. Get as far as that. I got as far as, excuse me, prime, when Harold Wilson, who was actually quite a kind of mild-mannered kind of bloke normally, absolutely exploded with rage and walloped me really hard with his with his left fist right in my stomach and doubled Uh. me up and tried to get the microphone out of my hand with his other hand. And he said, You know, I never do these things. The BBC knows that I never, never do these things. I, I, I'm so angry about this. Directly, I get to Liverpool, I'll get, be on the phone to your director general to put in the strongest complaint <laughs> possible about your appalling behavior. And then he got oh on my the train. God and every all the the journalists cameramen everybody laughing uh you can't do that one i remember one of them said you don't ask the prime minister questions sonny and wow. i i even then i thought why why don't you ask the prime minister questions but anyway i was too busy kind of coughing and retching it was 10 to 11 On my first day, and I'd been physically assaulted by the Prime Minister in front of the world's press, (laughs) and I'd lost my job. But actually on the train journey, I suppose Harold Wilson, who wasn't a bad bloke, I got to know him afterwards. I suppose he must have thought, oh well, what the hell? You know, not it's not worth making a fuss about. So I kept my job. But the story of Wilson attacking a reporter didn't appear anywhere. Well, not that I know I
0: mean, how times have changed, because imagine if that was to happen now.
1: Yes, could you imagine now?
0: (laughs) (laughs) But your first taste, though, of really being like on the journalistic front line, a different kind of front line. But I mean, how did that make you feel? Was it a buzz? Did you find that exciting?
1: No, I was terribly scared. I was nearly, uh, I was, I was captured um, by the uh, provisional IRA on my, again, my first outing in Northern Ireland, I was so stupid. I, I turned up dressed, um, like, a well dressed like an off duty British army officer would in a sports jacket and dark trousers and brogues and a tie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had my little tape recorder in my pocket, and I went to cover an IRA funeral. Anyway, the one of the IRA people, there were, there were no police, no army, of course, uh, in the whole of the, the cemetery, Glasnevin Cemetery in Belfast. They spotted a, a Daily Mirror photographer. The, the IRA hated the Daily Mirror. I forget why. And they beat they beat the bejesus out of him just, just yeah. nearby I main so bad. He had to be airlifted back to, uh, to England. And, uh, I don't think he ever worked again. Gosh. And yeah. they got me and, uh, a bloke a really nasty looking bloke said, give him one up the nostril, which means put a gun like that and fire it. Wonderful, wonderful Sunday times correspondent whom i'd walked to Glasnevin cemetery with thank god so brave he just wandered over in a very sort of relaxed way and he said oh hello john uh, you've got is there some sort of problem he said to these people and they said he's a fucking army spay and this guy they knew because he'd done quite a lot of work uh, about the ira and um and uh, he said, oh, no, you've got the wrong end of the stick tally works for the BBC. So then they okay. said to me, OK, if you work for the BBC, where's your BBC ID? And, you know, I was always careless. And I, I don't think I had a BBC ID for some reason. And that m- meant that they really did Think that I was a spy, but when, but Derek kind of talked them over, calmed them down. No, no, you know, just go, come with us now. We can go back to John's car. I'd given him a lift. Thank God. And uh, so they they uh, they let me go. But I went back to my hotel, and I remember this all so clearly. And sat down on the bed, and I thought, this lark isn't for me it, it, you know really? there are tough characters uh in mm. the BBC uh who can do this kind of stuff but you know I'm sensitive I feel pain easily I don't think I'm going to carry on with this and I thought I'll call my boss and say look I'm sorry I'm not the person that you thought I was and I'm I'm uh, I'd like to come home please but then I don't know I ordered, I remember ordering a steak and a bottle of wine uh, on room service. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just stick it out a little bit longer. And I I did. I mean, I didn't ring anybody up. And I stayed for two, three weeks or something, covering very, quite unpleasant um, stories. And uh, in the end, you know, I, I did carry on doing the whole thing.
0: That's so interesting that you should say that because I was going to ask you. You've reported from so many war zones and put yourself in extremely dangerous situations. And I read that when most journalists were evacuating from places like Baghdad and Belgrade, you were staying behind. So I was going to ask you where your fearlessness and single-mindedness to get the story came from. So that obviously evolved. It wasn't all there at the start.
1: No, no, we're well, certainly not, not, not then. And I learned. I learned the hard way during the the civil war in Angola when uh, two or three of us, two of us actually, had a really sort of world-beating story about some uh, British mercenaries, in fact, who had been murdered by their commanding officer. And um, I was very, very, very scared. And I was there with a rather crafty, uh, cameraman who worked for uh, NBC America and we were working together. And um, I said, I wonder whether, you know, we, we should get this story out. I mean, I should probably get on a plane. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get on the plane. I'll, I'll just hang on, you know, for a, a few more hours, uh, sorting out my gear and stuff like that. So he, um, he encouraged me to get on the plane. And then, of course, he got the whole of the rest of the story. And I wrote to him quite a sort of angry note afterwards. And he said to me, yeah, I know, probably, uh, you know, I should have let you, I should have encouraged you to stay. Mm. But he said, let that be a lesson. He was, I don't know, 20 years older than me. Never leave a story till it's over. Mm. And I I learned the lesson. Um, so, mm. uh, you know, another hard-earned lesson.
0: I should say. Well, let's pause there and move on to Chapter 2, the first place you fell in love with.
1: A very, very corny, but Paris um Mm -hmm. i'd i I didn't go to paris until when i in fact became the uh, bbc's what we then called common market correspondent very difficult very tricky um awful boring story but incredibly important at that stage because britain was just joining the 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 eu and i'd never been to paris i'd know how to get to the center of Paris. I rented a car at uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport and drove in, but I you know, I didn't I didn't really speak much French at that stage. Now it's thank God one of my main languages, but I couldn't see any sign that said center of town. So I it took me ages uh to find <laughs> the center of Paris and I was staying at a hotel on the Champs-Élysées. And I just absolutely adored it. And I didn't get in until after all this sort of driving around till about one on the morning or something. And <laughs> yeah. the hotel, the hotel Claridge, now uh, it either closed down or it's under new management or something. And I, I had this little bedroom, tiny little bedroom overlooking the Champs Elysees, and. I didn't close the curtains that night because I just wanted, even from my bed, to be able to see the Champs-Élysées and uh, the uh, the tiny, even tinier little uh, bathroom, well, just a shower room and a loo, really, and a, a white toweling bed. Bathrobe, and I thought I've never seen anything so sophisticated in my life. Um, And you know, I just, I just uh, absolutely adored the place, and and always have ever since. And I, I lived there for a while, had a had a flat there uh, in the seventh, and um, you know, had a had a great time.
0: And you lived there and returned so many times. What are your favourite Parisian
1: haunts? Well, I. I would feel that I'd never, um, uh, I, I hadn't been to Paris, uh, even if I was in the Champs Elysees, until I'd been to the Rue de Rivoli, and that okay. just seems. I mean, so I've got so many memories of that that area. Friends who lived just round the corner, restaurants I've been to, cafes I've been to, demonstrations I've covered in the Rue de Rivoli. Uh, nearly got my head knocked off uh, at one stage in the student, some student riots oh, and i just you know that to me is the absolute heart of uh, of paris
0: so is that like the quintessential Parisian experience walking down that road would you say
1: well for me for me it is and there's a, a little bar there that i you know i've always been to which is still pretty much unchanged you know what those sort of um red sort of leatherette chairs and and he, so many bums have sat on them i mean bottoms over the the decades and it's all kind of worn away uh but yeah. um yeah you know I, uh, well, then i really and i have a ricard and i think uh you know i've i'm back
0: mm. one of the all-time greats so chapter three is the place where you learn the most about yourself. This must be a hard one. I mean, there must be so many formative experiences over the decades of traveling.
1: I suppose the place that I really kind of got some insights into myself, not always fantastically noble ones, of course, uh, was Baghdad. In 1990 and 1991, in the run-up to the uh, first Gulf War, uh, w- which happened mm-hmm. uh, uh, in January 1991, and I stayed there for oh, I don't know about six months, I think, in wow. in uh, in Baghdad, right through to the war. But I remember one. I did. I came out from time to time, had to, uh, but uh, always went back quite quickly, as. As I was checking in at uh, Amman Airport in Jordan with various other, not very many actually, uh, Western journalists, really just a, a guy from CNN and somebody else from Spanish television. I think I think just the three of us, and we mm-hmm. were queuing up to get on. Not that there was anybody on the plane except the three of us, I think. And uh, I got into conversation with this CNN man who was a producer and i really really admired him and liked him and i said to him what what the hell are you doing going to baghdad and uh, you know he he laughed and and he said oh well i was in saigon when uh it fell to the viet cong only i got out that morning with a lot of other journalists and he said So that was what uh, 15 years earlier. And he said, I've I've spent the last 15 years trying to make up for it and never, never Mm. wanting to lose an opportunity to show that I wasn't chicken. And he said, so I'm going here and I'm not leaving, he said. And I thought, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life saying, oh, well, I could have stayed, but I've always stayed whenever I possibly can. I mean, sometimes they use a forklift to put you on the plane to get rid of you, but but mostly you can, I've found, stay. Mm-hmm. I'll never leave a place again. Um, and I say this, you know, just before going to Kabul, which could easily fall in the next Few months, but if it does, uh, I I don't think I'll be uh, mm. I'll be leaving. I think I'll stay there.
0: How does your family cope with that? Because I know you have a young son and you've got older daughters as well. Being there for such an extended period of time, when you know you're out in Baghdad or coming up going to Afghanistan in these precarious times. Is it difficult to manage your relationships with them?
1: Well, they've got to be really nice people and uh, and they are, thank goodness. And they put up with me and they put up with my job and they forgive me, I think, Um it, my wife is. It's easier for my wife. She's uh, um, a former producer, South African uh, lady who came and worked with me at the time of Nelson Mandela's uh, election in 1994, and uh, so she knows. She's not. She doesn't get worried. She's been to uh, Afghanistan herself with me, working with me. So she she knows that it isn't always as frightening as it seems. You know, when you're looking, reading the papers, or, or or watching television, my son is different because he's a very sensitive kid. And that when I used to do, I used to go a lot to to Iraq all during the the civil war. Every six weeks, I did two weeks in Iraq from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And I remember in our house yeah. in uh, in Chelsea in London. He must have been about four, I think. Um, I was leaving on one of these trips, and poor little kid, he stood at the front door with his arms out to try to stop me. And um, uh, later uh, uh, in uh, his school, one of his teachers said to me, I always know when you're abroad or somewhere difficult because – uh, Rafe spends a lot of time looking out of the window. And, you know, that, of course, that's not done. He's coming up to his GCSEs and so on. But, you know, that's how I earn a living, really. Um, and there's not much I can do to stop it. I've just got yeah. to hope yeah. that he'll develop the sort of, you know, tough, necessary toughness to put up with it.
0: And he must be very proud.
1: I, I don't know. I, I, I see no evidence particularly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Afghanistan, I had to ask you, after 9-11, you wanted to get into Afghanistan as the country was preparing for the American assault. So tell me what you did to get in there.
1: <laughs> I Well, first thing, I got irritated. Um, I'd spent quite a lot of time in afghanistan before before that i was actually uh there on 9 11 the taliban put out a statement that said if they caught any uh foreign journalists in their territory they would shoot them and i that just kind of really pissed me off and i thought uh you know what why should anybody you know threaten to do this and and so i thought okay i'm I'm bloody well going to do it. And we worked out. I got a, a gang of, um, I'm afraid of, uh, cross-border smugglers, and I paid them some cash uh, to take me in. And they said, look, the only way that you're going to get through and, and survive the experience is if you put a burker on because nobody can see you under a burqa. So both I and the cameraman uh, wore burkers. Uh, to get in, and they the smugglers were right. I mean, the 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 Taliban would just look at us and look away. I mean, they weren't the slightest bit interesting. I had to do something about my large size eleven boots and so on. But but you, you cover those in the back <laughs> of the van. What, and, what did you do? Well, I would just cover them with. Uh, I, I got them to give me some some um, uh, kind of I don't know, just rubbishy cloth, and uh, we yeah. put the we put our boots underneath it. The cameraman and I, the burka is such a a, a sort of billowing, fantastically large garment that the cameraman was able to have his uh, camera, full size uh, television camera, under it with him, and it still didn't. Show.
0: No way. So he looked like he was a very uh, large, plump woman.
1: Yes, he won that. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. No, exactly. The only bad thing about it was the, the little head pieces were so tight that it, it gave both of us really bad headaches, especially with all the fumes of the vehicle and bouncing around and everything. That was quite difficult. Uh. And then um, so we did some uh, we stayed there for a bit, did some filming and uh, then then came back. And I remember the cameraman who knows Afghanistan better than almost any other Westerner said to me, then nobody's ever going to forget this, you know. And I said, oh, come on. It's just another it's just another thing to do. And uh, but he was, I'm afraid, right. And I, I still get. Um, uh, all sorts of uh, mostly not very flattering references to it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, did it give you an insight into the female experience? There,
1: absolutely did. Uh, I'll never, never, never forget what it was like. The burka, if you can sort of summon up the memory of it, has got a sort of lace patch for the eyes, right? And it's thick lace. Uh, It's hard to see through it. And the extraordinary thing was directly you put this on, you cease to be effectively a a human being. And so I remember I was halfway through giving my instructions to this gang of smugglers, telling them where we wanted to go, what we wanted them to do, and so on. Uh, As as I was putting the burqa on, And directly the instant that the burqa was over my face, uh, they started talking to the cameraman. And when the cameraman put Hmm. his uh, burqa on, they started talking to the driver, the Afghan driver who was with us. And um, it was really hard to break through that and to, to be still wearing this thing and to give them their orders because I'd become a woman and women counted for absolutely zero and their their mm. instructions their orders meant absolutely nothing to these guys and it was really hard to force them to do things they didn't want while kind of all covered up with the with the burqa and a more horrible experience i, I, I you know I haven't, uh, I don't think I've had in that respect. And the thought that they may be coming back to control Afghanistan again is a miserable one.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK, and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all Airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the travel diaries. Next up is chapter four, your all time favorite destination. What comes to mind when you've visited so many places?
1: Well, I actually love a lot of places. Um, I'm I've, sure. I've, I've got a, a, a sort of heart wrenching sense of Oh, I don't know a dozen places, but of course, inevitably, it's the ones you can't easily get to that I I love the mm-hmm. most. And mm-hmm. I I've spent over over the years large amounts of time in Iran. Learned the language, although it's now slipped away from what's left of my brain. I I love I think just about everything about Iran, except its. Present government, but everything to do with it, with its society and the cuisine and uh, the architecture and the tea and uh, uh, the pheasant june. My one of my favourite uh, dishes, uh, and so on. I'm
0: so pleased you brought up Iran because obviously I knew that you had travelled there a lot and it's a destination I've always been so curious about. I've heard such amazing things and I was interested in booking a trip there not so long ago. I, I think it would be much harder now, but I know it's one of the most beautiful oh, countries absolutely. in the world.
1: But it is still possible to go. Um, it's not as and and you know there's a new hardline president uh who may well change things a bit um but uh I, if you do go two things will happen you'll find one is that it will be nothing nothing like you think of when you watch all the television things of people chanting death mm-hmm. to them. America, death of Britain. And the other thing allied to that is that you will find how incredibly popular British people are. This
0: podcast is popular in Iran. Is I it is. see where in the world my listens are each week, and I'm always amazed that there's a really great contingent there oh. that listens every week in Iran.
1: Well, they, they, there's a... a Okay, they've had their problems with Britain. Who, which country on earth hasn't, actually? I mean, you know, we've stuck mm. our fingers in just about everybody's pie uh, around the world at some stage, done some dodgy things, of course, Ma- major, dodgy, yeah. majorly dodgy things, but ordinary people really really are are charming to Brits. I dare say they are to Americans too, but particularly to the Brits because our history goes back so far.
0: And if you were a first-time visitor to Iran, where would you start off? Where would you suggest would be a good place to go first?
1: Well, you have to remember that Tehran, the, the capital, is just about the ugliest city in the entire country. So right, although okay. there are wonderful Bits of, of Tehran. I mean, the Grand Bazaar is uh, uh, a, a place to go and spend days in. Uh, I would say, um, but you have to you have to really to get out. And the wonderful. Cities of the of the eastern part of the country, Mashhad and so on, near the Afghan border, or down, of course, to to um, some of the most exciting and and uh, wonderful places, uh, both historically and in terms of of architecture or something. Is Fahan? Is Fahan is mm-hmm. is uh, um, my I think one of my f- Top three cities uh, in the world, anywhere. Really? Um, oh yes, absolutely. Because lovely. Of and, because of its appearance,
0: because of its yeah, it's
1: wonderful architecture. I mean, absolutely stunning. Mostly built in the yeah sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. Um, wonderful, mm. wonderful places to go. And you just—if anybody does do this—go out on a Thursday night. Thursday late on a Thursday evening sort of six o'clock seven o'clock and wander around the parks and everything everywhere you will see little groups family groups uh having their uh their evenings picnic in the in the parks and you will not be able to get through it believe me without sitting down and joining in um somebody's evening uh meal and they 'll be lovely. so that whether they speak English or not, you will be treated like a, a an honored honored guest and of course, not very far from um, uh, from Isfahan is uh, Persepolis, which is um, one of the the great uh, uh, ruined cities, archaeological sites of the world, and so much of it has 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 remained. Burned uh, accidentally or not by Alexander the Great, uh, but nevertheless still there and um, still wonderful. Heart-stoppingly wonderful. Mm.
0: I dream of getting there one Mm. day. Thank you you for bringing it to life so beautifully. Mm. Chapter five is your hidden gem, a place that you love that my listeners might not know so much
1: about. Yes, well, I've got this thing for Central Asia, that's my, uh-huh. that's my area that, that, that really delights me when I, when I get there. Mm-hmm. And um, Uzbekistan has an awful government, but it's got wonderful, wonderful cities in it. And uh,
0: yeah.
1: if you can get to Bukhara where all sorts of bad things have happened over the centuries but the one thing that hasn't happened is that, that not even the russians who of course you know it was part of the old soviet union uzbekistan not even the russians pulled down uh, the uh, the best bits of it bukhara is uh, i think the most beautiful place that i can i can think of
0: oh i've been blown away by the pictures that i've seen of uzbekistan i Don't know if I can picture Bukhara, but I I picture Samarkand that I've seen a lot. Yeah,
1: Samarkand's nice, but Samarkand was messed up by by the Soviets. Um, They, I mean, some of it still is is as it was, uh, and it and it and lovely, and it's certainly worth definitely worth the trip. But Bukhara, and there's another place called Khiva, K H I V A, which is uh, just just magnificent most most marvelous uh, mongol architecture and post post-mongol architecture lovely stuff mm. and nobody much goes there because it does have a rather unpleasant government and uh, you know it's hard to uh, hard to get in but worth it mm.
0: okay noted mm. in contrast to that chapter six is your worst ever travel experience
1: Oh God, yeah, I I had problems when I knew you wanted me to, to ask me this because I mean I've had awful, awful experiences, but somehow or another they're mostly to do with getting to difficult places. And somehow or another that's a, a part of of the whole experience. So that for instance, uh, in in Afghanistan, uh, I c- came in in just before the fall of the Taliban in two thousand and one. After nine eleven, uh, I came down from the north through uh, I think one of the stans. I forget which one. We finally came through, and uh, we had I think an eight day journey, which was p- the hardest of my. Life Oof, and yeah. you know no, no roads, for instance. So you had we had these Russian, very sturdy Russian jeeps. Uh, I think we rented five of them, and two of them survived the experience. You, could, the only way you could do these things was to drive over um, uh, riverbeds with sort of rocks in them, and everything was. Everything, you know, it sort of shook the fillings out of your teeth. And at one stage, Mm. um, there was a a a flange of metal that was sticking out. I mean, Russian jeeps are not built for comfort, as you can imagine. And uh, I cut my leg on this thing, and it never healed. And eventually, I Mm. I I nearly uh, uh, well, I actually nearly died of sepsis as a result of the wound. I was okay in the end. But uh, it was really dodgy. Um, So, I mean, that was probably the worst journey of my life, except that we had a place to go to, which was just on the northern edge of Kabul. Taliban still controlled Kabul, but we could get Mm -hmm. down to the northern edge, which was run by the pro-Western group called the Northern Alliance. So it it was really kind of positive. So even though I had this big sort of mark on my leg that was bleeding away, and um, even though I had a headache to last me until kingdom come, and we lived on all sorts of ghastly food, uh, nevertheless... It was uh, it was wonderful to get there. So I, I the places that I don't like, uh you maybe you're too nice to ask me uh these things. Places I don't like are the places that are easy and bland and boring, actually. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, um Qatar, uh God, you know, I mean I uh, oh. <laughs>
0: I can't imagine you having a holiday in any of those places.
1: <laughs> no, well, we b- mistakenly, just before the lockdown, about the week before, my wife found um, that the only cheap place we could just hop on a plane to go to was Qatar. Um, and uh, we had, I think, a week there or something. And uh, oh, I'll never – oh, I wouldn't even go for the World Cup, let alone uh, – Let alone for for that. And they, no booze anywhere, you know. They took a, found a bottle of booze in my luggage and took it away.
0: Took it away? uh, Oh, no. um,
1: Just, uh, (laughs) you know, very, very boring.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, your new book, Our Friends in Beijing, very exciting. It follows on from your first novel, Moscow Midnight. So tell me a bit about the book and what inspired this story of John, the journalist-protagonist.
1: Yeah, well, in fact, it's really a, a, a story of, it's really based uh, very heavily on, on fact. Of course, you can't write a novel about fact, strict fact, because, you know, you get sued apart from anything else. But I've dusted it with fiction. But uh, something like 70 or 80% of the things that happened, including some of the quite nasty things, happened, have happened to me over the years. Not necessarily in China, but mostly in China. And it's the story really uh, about um, a, a Chinese political grandee whose name in real life was Bo Lai, who staged a kind of coup against the, the Chinese um, uh, authorities, and I, I knew Bochilai from way, way back in the 1990s, and I, I just extended that by making him my translator at the time of Tiananmen Square. But in fact, Bo Xilai wasn't uh, didn't wasn't my translator. But I I liked him. I liked him a great deal. I could see that uh, you know he wasn't quite uh, you know 14 annas to the rupee. I mean, he was dodgy definitely Mm dodgy but i i did like him and he was he staged he almost staged his his coup attempt his wife was caught for murdering a british businessman and that that kind of ruined him uh i didn't like his wife very much uh and that ruined him by association and he's now doing life in a in a prison, which I hope is not too bad. I've tried to send him things, but uh, I don't think any of it's got through. So I based the novel on him and his coup attempt, and and there's a character that's kind of like me in it, only uh, with lots, lots of differences, but, um, you know, um, sort of moderately recognisable.
0: You must have had fun turning all these momentous experiences that you've experienced, had throughout the years into, you know, a page turner.
1: Yes. Well, thank you. Yes. But the the most enjoyment, you know, ever since about 2013, uh, I've had real difficulties at the BBC. They've ended now. Thank God the whole thing's finished. But we brought in a head of news from the Times newspaper. He was the editor of mm-hmm. the Times. And he came in uh, with a uh, on a mission to get rid of all the old characters like me, mm. had, uh, John Humphreys and Jeremy Paxman, and, uh, David Dimbleby and all these people. He didn't tell anybody that he was on a mission to do it. Well, I think he did tell one or two people close to him, but he didn't uh, obviously make it, make it known. And I had a real, real battle just clinging onto the cliff face to uh, stop them chucking me out. And they they cut my pay in half and then they threatened to cut it again by another half in Mm. order to sort of drive me out. And... What nicer way, what better way to get your own back than to put some version of the character, only without the nice or clever sides, of course, of of this man, who is actually both nice and clever in many, many ways. But, um, uh, you know, you wouldn't think that, I think, from my novel. (laughs) And I just... uh, I just had the greatest fun in in doing that and making fun of him <laughs> making fun of the way he spoke and acted and uh, and all of this.
0: <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, finally we're on to chapter 7 and that is the destination at the top of your travel bucket list.
1: Well, uh, I mean aside from places that I can't easily get to like like uh, um, Iran. There's I've been to most places that I want to go to and like. So we're now looking at you know what other places are there that uh, I I love uh, don't get to enough and and would would adore to go back to mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that I suppose is Argentina. I I just absolutely adore everything about Argentina. Um I love the style, I love the uh the language. I mean the the Argentine Spanish is just delightful to my ear. Of course, who couldn't like the steaks. Uh, well, I suppose you wouldn't if you were a, a mm. vegetarian, but um, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm not uh, not yet. Although I have been in the past, and I love the the music, the bandoneons, the uh, the dancing. You know, the way that that, and I also love that that attitude of, of Argentinians. That you know, the world, and particularly sadly, their own countries going down the tube as as we watch and yet they always make it delightful and charming and light in Mm -hmm. in touch and um, nobody gets too serious about it and I mean the thing that I suppose I love the most is going out I took my wife there fairly recently it was the first time she'd been there Mm -hmm. and she was getting nervous about uh, our evening meal because she thought I was being far too sort of uh, offhand about it. And when it got to be ten thirty and we still hadn't set foot out of our hotel room to go and get a get a meal, she said, "Look, look, look, we can't I, I, we can't wait around any longer." And when we got into the restaurant, it was empty, and she said, "You see, you see." And I called a waiter over and I said. Um, when do you think people will be coming in? And he said, oh, you know, in an hour or something like that.
0: <laughs> Such a different way of life, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's wonderful. And, uh, so little, little kids coming in and, uh, oh, I, it was just lovely. Families all around us in this very, yeah. ex- not expensive restaurant, but very, very good restaurant. And then, you know, so we finished our meal at about, I don't know, 2 o'clock, one thirty, or 2 o'clock. And I thought, "Why don't we go and see a movie?" So we went into the perhaps three o'clock in the morning showing, packed out, Uh, and uh, we came out at about five o'clock, five thirty, whatever it was. And I said to Dee, to my wife, "That was such a a great film, you know." And it was based on a a a novel by uh, one of my. Favorite Argentine writers, um, Borges. I said, "Why don't we just go and get a copy of it? I'd like to like to get it." So we went into a bookshop five thirty in the morning
0: mm. and
1: bought a copy of the book, and then came down, came back to our hotel and uh, lay down and had breakfast uh, um, later. And I just think the Argentines have the art of. Of living uh, mm. perfectly, mm. so that's it's not. I mean, it's again. I've written a book about Argentina. Um, it's not that I don't know it and would be excited to go there, but knowing it, I am, you know, always excited to go back, and uh, that that would be my absolute number one destination: Buenos Aires.
0: Perfect. Oh, thank you so much, John Simpson. Those were your travel diaries. It has been an honour and a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm very nice of you and lovely questions.
0: Oh, I could have talked to John for hours more. What a lovely man and what an incredible privilege to hear some of his travel diaries. His novel, Our Friends in Beijing, is published by John Murray and is out on Thursday, July 22nd. And thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. It's really easy to do that. On Apple, they've just changed it so that you follow rather than subscribe by pressing the plus sign in the top right hand corner of the app. I would also be so grateful if you could leave a rating or a review It really helps other people to discover the podcast. To find out who's joining me next week, follow me on Instagram at Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait until then, there's all of seasons one, two, three and four to catch up on. Thanks again. Take care and I'll be back with you next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos visiting some places that have been on my bucket list and while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun my home will be hosting guests from airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries.